Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit UH1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis. On the show, we unpack the truths and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you've come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Joint Action Podcast, where we have the privilege of talking about do steroid injections for osteoarthritis help or harm? Steroid injections are incredibly common types of interventions used in the context of osteoarthritis. I'm sure many of you have probably been offered a steroid shot to help with the pain that you're getting from your osteoarthritis. And pain remains a large unmet need. But in the armamentarium that a clinician has, is a steroid shot helpful or harmful? As I said, they're incredibly widely used, but there's a lot of recent evidence questioning their efficacy for pain relief and also raising concerns about ongoing structural changes that might be potentiated by the steroid shot itself. So in this particular episode, we talk about what the size of the effect is how that compares to other treatments, whether multiple injections might help, and are we able to predict who they might work best in? On the other side of the ledger, we also talk about potential risks, and in particular, focus a lot on the imaging findings associated with steroid shots or more severe disease. There's a lot of contention at the moment 
about the associated findings of structural deterioration that may go along either with osteoarthritis or the steroid injection itself. I think the other important element to consider here is the opportunity cost, that of if you are provided a steroid injection, does it come at the expense of another intervention that might be more helpful and less harmful? This particular podcast followed a recent debate where we had two wonderful proponents coming from either side of that harmful or helpful ledger. If you are interested in the debate, we'll include the YouTube link to that video recorded debate in the show notes. The two proponents were Marguerite Kloppenberg and Ali Gamazi talking respectively about the help or potential benefits associated with steroid injections and their potential harms. Dr. Marguerite Kloppenberg has been on the show before, but Marguerite is a professor of rheumatology in the Department of Rheumatology at Leiden University Medical Center. And she's a rheumatologist and epidemiologist and will include further information about her bio in the show notes. Dr. Ali Gamazi is a French board certified radiologist. Ali's interest is in musculoskeletal diseases. And in particular, he makes important scientific contributions in the diagnosis and disease progression and assessment of osteoarthritis using MRI. And again, we'll include further notes about his bio in the show notes. So hello, Marguerite and Ali, and thank you and welcome to the show. Thank you, David. Thanks for the invitation. It could be any time of the day with Marguerite in Europe and Ali in Boston and me here basically in the middle of my nighttime. But firstly, I just want to lay out the context. Obviously, we're talking about osteoarthritis and steroid injections is something that are done incredibly commonly. But what actually happens, Marguerite, when a person comes along with joint pain? How is the injection given? What's given in the injection? And who usually would do that for them? When patients come in and they have knee pain, it's clear that they have osteoarthritis and we understand that this knee pain and this osteoarthritis come together, then one of the, the treatments you can consider is giving a steroid injection. But uh, I think it's good to point out that you, of course, also have to directly consider other options. But what we do then is that we put a needle in the knee of the patient and then First, we try whether there, we aspirate a little bit of fluid, and it also makes clear that we are in the right place. We do it blindly when it uh, comes to the knee, for instance. And then we inject a little bit of corticosteroids that can be methylprednisolone or triamcinolone acetate. And sometimes we add a little bit of anesthetic to it. And then what we do then is that we bench the, the knee sometimes that you are very sure that everywhere in the knee, a little bit of the medication come. And it de depends a little bit on the instructions, but most of the time we advise patients to take a little bit of rest. And what we also do is that we really explain to the patients what are the risks. So risks, when you think, for instance, about infections are low, but it's really something we instruct patients about. And when the pain gets worse or when they get temperature or whatever, they have to call the doctor. And so what risks, Marguerite, would you usually advise people about prior to them having that injection? The primary risk I discuss with my patients is that you always have a risk when you have an invasive procedure that you can 
if an infection. And I can tell you this risk is very low. And recently, a study has been done in Denmark where they used a huge amount of data and that also showed that the risk is very, very low, but the risk is not nil. So that's why I think that people should be informed about this. The number that I often hear quoted, I'm not sure whether that's consistent with the Danish study, is about one in 10,000 injections would end with a, an infected joint, a septic arthritis. Is, is that the number that you're... What came out of the study in Denmark was 0.08%. So it's very low. And you mentioned a little bit of rest, but what do you mean by rest after the injection? Are they trying to take it easy for a couple of days? What, what, are, you, what are you inferring there? Yes, your knee is a weight-bearing joint. So what we often do is that we advise that, of course, take a little bit of rest and do a little bit of less weight-bearing to prevent maybe that the medication leaves the joint. But to be honest, there is not much evidence for that. What we know, and that's maybe also good for people to realize, when you get this injection, and of course, we as doctors inject it in the joint, we also know from studies that it will go out of the joint, not only staying in the joint. So that's also why people get uh, some explanation that they sometimes can get flushes, for instance, or when they are a diabetic, that they have to check their glucose levels a little bit more often because you have these other effects as well. Yeah, and you mentioned obviously a little bit of rest and that the, um, the steroid goes out of the joint. My understanding is that most of the steroid, pretty much irrespective of what type of steroid, is gone from the joint within hours. Is that is that also your understanding? Yes, that's also my understanding. Okay, so let's let's now talk about effects. So what typical size of effect would a person with knee osteoarthritis anticipate from a steroid injection? The effect you can expect is on pain. And it's a transient effect that's very important to realize. So in most patients, after one to two weeks, there is a maximal effect on pain, and then it's gradually diminished. So you still have some efficacy after three, four, five, six weeks, but then already it's diminishing more. And in most patients, after a month of two, three, the effect is gone. Yeah. And how does that compare in terms of the size of that effect with other treatments such as exercise, weight loss, anti-inflammatories? The studies that look in the effect of interarticular injections showed that you, you can expect an effect of around 18 millimeters on a 100 millimeter scale. So that's what we call, it's really something. It's really clinical meaningful. And when you compare it to other treatments, for instance, other NSAIDs, for instance, other painkillers, it's a little bit in the same range. Yeah. Now, if a person were to require more than one injection, are they beneficial as well? Currently, there's no evidence for that. So most studies looked really into the efficacy of single injections. And there are a few studies done in which they gave repeated injections at predefined time points. And that did not turn out to be efficacious after more than one year of study follow-up. However, this, this was a little bit strange study setup because they gave injections really at predefined points in time. And that's, of course, not what we do in clinical practice. So I think the best we can say now is that there is no evidence that repeated injections are efficacious. 
Yeah. And you alluded to it, but what typically happens in clinical practice? Why, why would someone get a steroid injection as opposed to the routine three-monthly injections that you were just referring to that occurred in the trial? What typically responds, what are you responding to as a clinician that would prompt you to encourage a person to have an injection? Now, in clinical practice, I think we consider giving such an injection when we really have the idea that there is a kind of flare-up of osteoarthritis. And that's also at the point in time when there is often a little bit of inflammation ongoing in the osteoarthritic joint. We know that, that corticosteroids have strong anti-inflammatory effects, so then you can also understand the mechanism of actions, how you could give an effect what's helpful. Yeah. Then you hope that in this period, the flare is diminishing. That's what you want. And sometimes there are also situations that people really say, I know that I have periods of pain and I, I normally can cope with that. But now I have something really special in my life. There is a festivity going on. My son is marrying or something like that. And I really, in these two weeks in my life, I really want less pain. And of course, afterwards, I cope with it again. But now, these are also situations that you can discuss with your patients that are kind of options that you can consider. Wonderful. And within what you just mentioned, obviously, you alluded to the fact that they may work through targeting inflammatory pathways. Are you able as a clinician to predict those people who are more likely to respond to a corticosteroid injection so that it could be targeted better? That's a very difficult question. For me as a clinician, I have my clinical feeling that it will be more helpful when there is inflammation going on. But on the other hand, I'm also a scientist. And I know from scientific evidence from clinical studies in which they try to find these predictors that having inflammation, that that not came out as a predictor that it works out better. So... That's it, it, really difficult. That's for me a very difficult question, but maybe that's the best answer I can give at the moment. No, that's a great answer. And I, I think wearing both of those hats makes you a little bit conflicted, right? Wearing the clinician, both wearing the, uh, the research scientist hat provides you different perspectives, which are both incredibly valuable. Now, most, most of the data you've spoken to thus far speaks really about knee osteoarthritis, but do you anticipate that the effects are similar when we're talking about other joints with osteoarthritis, such as hips, thumbs? Hips is a joint that are regularly injected as well. It's a little bit more difficult. That's good to mention. Knee joints can be injected blindly by a physician who's experienced. With hips, that's not easy to do. But then you can ask your radiologist to do it. That's on the one hand. There are far less data on the efficacy of steroid injections in HIPAA, but the studies that have been done suggest that it's efficacious there as well. Another side that is often injected, is what you mentioned, is the thumb-based joint. Some studies have investigated that, but that did not really show efficacy. When you talk with clinicians that see a lot of these type of patients, they have the idea that also there it can be helpful, but I think there we really need more studies to understand more whether we should do that or not. And just to clarify, when you mention the word blind, you're not talking about closing your eyes and sticking a needle in. You're just really <laughs> referring to the fact that you do that 
without the benefit of image guidance, such as what a radiologist might use, such as ultrasound or CT or X-ray? You are totally right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all good, all good. All right, now, you mentioned a moment ago that you also counsel people that this isn't the first-line treatment that they would receive for their osteoarthritis. When in the treatment hierarchy for a person who presents with osteoarthritis of the knee, what typically would you do first for their management? And when would you consider using intraarticular corticosteroids in that? I think as first step, you should always think about the core treatments. And the core treatments are the non-pharmacological ones. So really, the treatments options as education, lifestyle management, exercise, weight management, these are really the core treatments for osteoarthritis. And in addition to that, you can think about steroid injection. Brilliant. Now, I'm going to ask this next question in two ways. So the first, and this is really about how guidelines position corticosteroids. And the first part of that question is, do they recommend for corticosteroids? And the second part of the question is, do they recommend repeat use of corticosteroids? So I guess the first one is, do guidelines broadly, and I know there's a lot of different guidelines that are out there, but do they broadly recommend for the use of corticosteroid injections in the context of osteoarthritis? Yes, most guidelines are recommended. And then I think they refer to single injections, so not to repeated use of injections, or sometimes refer to the fact that there has to be a certain period in time between two injections, so that it's not with very short intervals after each other given. So that's one thing. Sometimes I think it's not very clear from the guideline whether it's a single injection or a repeat injection. But what also when you look in all the different guidelines, I think that in many guidelines they also put some extra to it. So they say it's not your, it's not the first line therapy, but you do it in addition to the core treatment we just discussed, or you give it win or all. Uh, medication, analgesics do not work, or you give it when there is a flare or there really has to be a certain amount of pain. Most guidelines that's maybe also good to realize is about the knee, yeah. uh, because the evidence about the hip is less clear. Yeah, understood. And that's, that's wonderful clarification. Thanks, Marguerite. Now, we were fortunate to have both Marguerite and Ali debating this topic, and this particular podcast recording is immediately following that debate, and it was really contentious. I was lucky enough to keep them from physical fight and just had to separate them, but we were, we were fortunate to do this on Zoom, so there wasn't any physical altercation between either of the uh, debate proponents. Now, for those of you that want to listen to that debate that's also been recorded so you can uh, listen to that but I'm now going to ask a few questions of Ali who was debating the negative tonight about the use of corticosteroids and Ali in the first instance can you just outline a little bit about what the potential risks are associated with the use of corticosteroid injections in osteoarthritis? Sure. Thanks, David, for the opportunity. So uh, again, I do think Marguerite uh, alluded to the risk of infection, which is really low, and I understand that. I do think the number that you gave, one out of 10,000, it's right. Uh, I want to just also add from the perspective of a radiologist, and we do this all the time, we also have some risk of hemorrhage, because when you inject, you can go through actually a small vessel and you have a, a little bit of uh, hemorrhage or hematoma. Also, it's not really that, that common. Nerve injury as well can happen because of the needle. 
But let me just talk about what people may, maybe wanted actually to listen to, which are the four adverse events that we saw, you know, in our study, even though retrospective, again, it's not the best study. I, I agree to that. What we wanted to show is those adverse events seen on patients that had uh, intraarticular corticosteroid injection. And we wanted just to say, just be careful. Until we know if they are real, if they, if they are actually the cause or con consequences, we need, as a matter of doctors, we do not harm, we don't, we, we don't want to do harm to patients. So as soon as we saw that, we wanted just to people to know that they exist. Now, let me just talk about them. One is RPOA type one, rapidly progressive osteoarthritis type one. So you have a normal joint space or you have a joint space that have more than two millimeters. And all of a sudden after one year or before one year, less than one year, you lose two millimeters of your joint space. That's really a lot. So for people to understand, usually you use between 0 0.3, maybe 0 0.25 to 0 0.3 millimeters. That's what you, you lose when you have actually a follow-up images. When you lose more than 0 0.7 millimeters, demonstrated by many studies, and especially osteoarthritis initiative, it means that you are in a progression. So if you lose the three times that, which is two millimeters, then you have a rapidly progressive osteoarthritis. So there is no change in anatomy, just loss of joint space. That's one. Rapidly progressive osteoarthritis type two is really completely different from osteoarthritis. Here you have a collapse, a fragmentation of bone. You lose anatomy. I showed in my actually slides that you have a tibial plateau that is completely fragmented, or you have a head of the femur. We saw this three, four times, which is now completely, you know, missing. And the hip is just the neck and the acetabulum sitting on it. So really something that you don't expect with osteoarthritis at all. Now you have this subchondral insufficiency fracture. I wanna just say that it was very controversial a few years ago, but with the MRI, we're getting to understand what's happening there. This is maybe because someone has some osteoporosis, maybe some fragility didn't actually run for many, many years or something like this and started because of the pain and we lesser the pain, started actually doing something which is amazingly not what uh, that person's done for you know a long time so you have some fragility in the bone and that bone will be microfracture locally on the subchondral bone and started actually of course to have these fractures we don't have really a reason in that 100% but this is maybe some speculation of the natural history of it what happened is a small line of fracture which is completely parallel to the subchondral bone all right, with a huge bone marrow edema, out of proportion, as I showed, and also inflammation. We call it subchondral insufficiency fracture. So that's also, if you don't do anything, if, because the only thing you can do at that point is not injecting steroids, but giving the patient six to eight weeks or more of non-weight bearing or a controlled weight bearing, something that will not actually walk, for example, with scratcher. You can you can walk at that time. So control or non-weight bearing, that's the treatment for subchondral insufficiency fracture and not an injection of actually corticosteroids. And lastly, osteonecrosis. We know this is not good to have an osteonecrosis. It's the death of the bone, all right? And we don't see it again at early stage on x-ray and it can be very painful. Again, you don't treat this with corticosteroids because you're going to add even more injury and, and more uh, to the problem because we know that corticosteroids given to patient in long-term, they give actually the patient osteonecrosis. So really given the patient locally osteonecrosis, probably get actually to complication of osteonecrosis, which is of course, again, collapse of the subarticular bone, et cetera. So those are really the four uh, complications that we saw. 
and we want to just uh, draw the attention of people getting steroids that they exist and we need to, to look at them very, very closely. Wonderful. Thanks, Ali. Um, I mean, and just talking about those four complications, how common are they? So what, what's the rough frequency of this that we're likely to see in a population with osteoarthritis? And are, uh, is this an association with severe disease or a consequence of the intraarticular corticosteroid treatment? So, David, we, we can go forever with, with this because I, I really saw all this and, I, and you're absolutely right to, to, to get this question. Let me just say one thing. In my hospitals, and this is really the U.S. side, because I agree that Margaret is in Europe and I am sitting in the U.S. And it's a completely different way to make actually this happen, you know, the intraarticular injection from the U.S. point of view and from the European point of view. And we can talk about this later. But let's say we do a lot of injection, re-injection. And sometimes they come after three months, they come six months. We have a patient, I counted, has 18 intraarticular injection in the same joint, all right? And still no actually complication, by the way. It just tells you that some, sometimes it's, it's really weird. But let me just answer your question. We showed in our paper that the most of the patient are with this adverse event, they had Cagliolorans 3. So it means so probably a little bit more moderate to severe osteoarthritis. But in essence, this adverse event are different from regular osteoarthritis, as I explained. So maybe there is an association with advanced OA. That's absolutely fine. On the other hand, we're not sure about this adverse event, if they are cause or consequences of intraarticular corticosteroid injection. And now how are we going to just do really, you know, relatively know this? It's, of course, what we said many times, randomized uh, clinical trial, double-blind randomized clinical trial will give us actually the answer because we don't know if these observed events were already ongoing and we just, the x-ray didn't show them or they are happening after the intraarticular corticosteroid injection. So without this study, we would not know really what, what's happening there. And just obviously for the listeners out there who are concerned that this is going to happen to them, how common are these events? They are not really that common. I mean, the re- retrospective study that we publish, of course, I don't want to just build on it anything. What I'm just saying, of course, we show 6%. I maybe think it's probably less. I will. I would think maybe it's 3%. But again, the percentages, as you know, David, are for, for epidemiology. But when it's you or me, we have only one, one person. That's 100%. So you don't want to just that 100% to collapse, of course. If, if I'm going to go for an intraarticular corticosteroid injection, I want it to know that it's going to help me and it's not going to hurt me. That's it. I don't want it 6% and 3%. That will not talk to me. So the, to, to the people that listening to us, you are 100% and we want to care about you. All right? How are we going to care about you? You need to have an inflammation. I'm not advocating that we have to stop. I'm saying you need to have an inflammation because this is an anti-inflammatory, all right? So if you don't have inflammation, why are you getting something to your body? For me, it's useless. The second maybe advocate, if you are going for total joint replacement, if I'm going for total joint replacement, it does not matter. This is my last maybe sentence. I'm going to just do it. It's my last chance. I do it. But if you are 20 and you have a normal X-ray and you have pain, please look at, at something else that gives you pain before injecting your your knee or your hip, because it can be really, really bad. I will not give this to my daughter who is 18. And I hope you will not do it yourself as well to your daughter. All right. So this is what happened. Yeah. I agree, Ali. And it's good to see your passion and good to see your enthusiasm for getting people the right care. Now, for this particular product, corticosteroids in osteoarthritis, have you found any relationship at all between these adverse effects and the magnitude of the dose 
And are there particular steroids that are more harmful than others? Again, really a fantastic question, David, and I really appreciate all these questions that we don't have a full answer for. We know, and Margaret will, you know, and you, of course, as a rheumatologist, you know, that when you have a diabetic person, you have to decrease the dose by half or even quarter of the dose. And that's what we do as, as a radiologist, the same way, exactly the same way. And in my hospital, we use long-acting steroids and we saw such adverse events, all right? On the other hand, and to answer all your question, to be honest, again, we need a solid double-blind, you know, randomized clinical trial, as we cannot answer this question adequately without these data. I don't want to speculate, tell people about, I, I don't have any problem with steroids. I don't have any conflict of interest about steroids. I'm just actually a doctor trying to say, just be careful. We don't have the data. We saw this, but let's actually have some data so we can see if we are doing harm or not. Maybe the data will show that there is absolutely no harm from actually steroids and those patients, they just have this actually before, and then we can continue and we know how the, we're gonna continue in the future. Or maybe it shows that there are some harm from them and we can get actually some guidelines. That's, that's why I wanna just convey here. Yeah, and what we'll do is we'll provide a link both to the debate so you can see the slides and the wonderful presentations that Marguerite and Ali gave in the show notes, but we'll also provide a link to the article that Ali is referring to there that showed some images and uh, represents the frequency of some of these effects. Now, I guess a question for both of you, when corticosteroids are used in clinical practice, sometimes they're used not necessarily following the core treatments, um, but that they're used potentially as an alternative to those core treatments. So is there an opportunity cost here where steroids are used in preference to some of the core treatments where they may not necessarily be advocating for exercise, weight loss in those people who are above a healthy weight and education. So really just asking uh, patients missing out on something by not being provided an opportunity to access those core treatments and going straight to Ali to have his guided corticosteroid injection. And, and again, David, really excellent question. You know, maybe people, they know, or they don't know. I worked actually before 12 years in Paris and I've done in France, so European style. I've done more than 10,000 injections of steroids in the past. And I do think this is really a different way to do it in Europe and different way to do it in the US. But let me just actually say one thing. And I go to what you're saying here. You are part of these big studies, call it IDEA and, you know, the other studies on exercise and weight loss. I would advise anybody who is listening to us, anyone, and myself first, to advise any other person to do exercise and weight loss. Start with those, because these are simple and most efficacious interventions to decrease and treat pain in OA. We saw it. It's published. Please, please provide that, those papers from the studies that we conducted with Steve Messier, and people will, will see by themselves. I do think this is the first thing, lose weight. You lose six or seven pounds, you have a loss of that pain. You actually decrease that pain by more than 50%. So do it, it's, it's nothing, to, just eat less and eat much more healthy and do more exercises. Now, I do think, again, there are you know, marked regional differences regarding frequencies of intra-articular steroid injection and also how-to injection. For example, in Europe, you cannot perform this if you don't have market clinical and sign of inflammation. You cannot do it. In the US, and I was explaining, Margaret, between the meeting and between the presentation and this podcast, we get patients of 18 years old. They tell you, please go inject the patient for an, an MRI 
and you know MR atrogram, and at the same time put a little bit of steroids. No, we cannot do that for someone who has actually no no inflammation and no sign of anything. I mean, you cannot do this because you think it's safe. It's it's not at this point and to proven otherwise. That's where I want to just convey. Wonderful, Ali, Magritte. And I agree with Ali in, in that respect that I really think that the first steps, when you think about treatment of osteoarthritis, first, you really have to consider the core treatment. So think about your lifestyle, think about your optimal weight management, think about exercise. These are really the steps first to set. And I think we even now know that when you compare exercise to giving steroid injections, there have been trials done that compared these two treatments that you also see that on the long run, when you do the exercise, you are better off when you think about pain than when you do an injection. So that's maybe not something that people had thought of before, because when you think about an injection, it sounds a little bit like a magic bullet. So it's like a, like a magic if you get such an injection. And especially when you think what, what I told you in the beginning, that the, the most efficacy you see after one to two weeks, but then after it is already diminishing it. Most of the pain you have for your osteoarthritis is not just there for one or two weeks, but it's there for months to stay. So then you have much more efficacy of a treatment that helps you for longer periods of time. And then uh, I totally agree with Ali that the first step we have to think about are the core treatments. Wonderful. Marguerite, Ali, any final thoughts, comments on this topic? I mean, to me, at the very end, the effect of steroids is temporary and short, if any, as we you know, demonstrate is only six weeks. I am absolutely not advocating against actually you know, uh, the treatment with intra-articular steroids. I'm just saying... I will suggest injection, injecting those patients with corticosteroids with confirmed synovitis and pain from that synovitis. It's easy. You can get actually simply an ultrasound or sometimes even by palpation. Ultrasound can show the inflammation with Doppler can show the, uh, the synovium inflammation and Doppler activity, of course. And it's simple at that point. Uh, Margaret alluded to this when she said uh, the thumb, the base of the thumb is much more mechanical. And when you do an ultrasound doctor, you don't find anything. You don't find any inflammation. Don't inject that patient. Why you're injecting is not going to help. Now, I think patients who are also candidate for joint replacement, they can do it as a last attempt. All right. Other likely should do and try maximum, maximum of, you know, they, they should try that, try exercise and weight loss and other conventional non-surgical options. There are many of them. And I do think, again, I really reiterate here on the papers by Messier. He wrote many papers. We are part of these studies and exercise. It's really good. And weight loss is absolutely phenomenal when it comes to pain. And again, in any case, we need to make very soon to make sure that these adverse events are maybe the cause or consequences of intraarticular corticosteroid injection. The patients need this information and we as physicians, we need this information as well, because it's going to tell us what to do best for our patients. So we need this clinical trial really very, very soon. This is for all my colleagues work on this clinical trial, double blind clinical trial to show if this is cause or consequence, because we need to have this information and to clearly uh, advise the patient the best way, because that's what we are for. Thanks, Ali. Margaret? I think everything is said. I, I thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity to talk about this, I think, important issue. 
osteoarthritis is so common and so many people suffer from pain from it. So it's good to realize what you can expect from treatment. So thank you, David, for being part of this. Thank you both very much for your time. It's great to have a chance to chat to you both, both so knowledgeable about this really important area. And I think it's really very, very useful information for the community that's out there. Thanks, David. I hope you found this content helpful. As many of you have probably already experienced, you've been offered a steroid injection when you've gone along to see your treating doctor. I'm hoping that the information provided has helped you to weigh the benefits and harms of steroid injections. At present, most guidelines would advocate that a one-off steroid injection during an acute flare or episode of osteoarthritis can be helpful. I do think it's important to recognize the increasing information though, raising concerns about accelerated structural changes of osteoarthritis in the context particularly of repeated steroid injections. As mentioned, if you are interested further in this topic, please go along to the longer YouTube version of this podcast where we present a lot more scientific data about the pros and cons of steroid injections. As always, really look forward to your feedback, your rating of the show, look forward to your questions and really looking forward to seeing you again and speaking with you again soon. Thanks for your continued support. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.